Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I discuss the ancient Amazonian psychedelic brew, ayahuasca. We explore its medicinal and ceremonial and psycho-spiritual uses, talk about some of the modern research, and Reed even shares some personal experiences navigating the ayahuasca experience. That's, uh, I use the word experience too much. I'm not going to edit it. You get, you get steep there raw. Thank you to those of you who've rated and or reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you'd like to listen means a lot to us. We do have some really exciting changes coming to the show soon that we cannot wait to share. So consider that a teaser for super cool content to come. Stay tuned for those changes. In the meantime, please enjoy our episode on ayahuasca. How the hell are you, my friend? Excellent. Uh, how are you, Steve? You know what? I'm excellent as well. I just uh, came back from a five or six day trip in the mountains of Montana mm. for a little digital detox. Uh, I was with a group of cool guys. They actually took our phones away. It was a little retreat, um, which was great. It's amazing how many times I think of reaching for my phone. Like <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the trail and think, oh, I should take a picture. Oh, I don't have my phone. Or, oh, I should write that. Ah, nope, I don't have my phone. And after a while, I didn't even think about it. And I was just looking at trees and trying to fish and failing and worrying about being trampled by moose. It was, it was good. It, was it just took a couple days of phantom phone pain. Yep. Feeling my leg vibrating. And there being no yeah, phone there. No, it's a thing. We are habit creatures. Indeed. Really great to reconnect with, with nature. Oh, I, I don't, don't spend enough time in, hmm. around, in and around Mother Earth. Well, I didn't go on a mountain adventure, but I was at a beach house concert last night. That was pretty cool. Oh, sweet. And I, I get the sense that there were a lot of difficult psychedelic experiences happening around. Yeah, that's just your suspicion, huh? My psychedelic <laughs> radar <laughs> was up. Right. Yeah, your entheogenic radar well well attuned. Yep. Yeah, I didn't have to do any drastic interventions or harm reduction though. I've got to enjoy it. it. Yeah, sometimes that feels a little weird when you're at a place where people are using substances recreationally and uh because we work in the biz, I I do feel like a little bit of a responsibility. I don't know if that's healthy or not, but like to mm-hmm. be helpful if I'm needed. Yeah, I mean it's kind of the same thing as is there a doctor on board? Right. <laughs> Um, which is funny to get when you're a psychiatrist too, but <laughs> so I'll just wait, see if the ER docs respond. If it's an airplane cardiac emergency, I was gonna say, if, if somebody on an airplane needs a trach or something, like, yeah. well, like they cut the pen and they stick it in their throat. I remember being in the military and then, then talking to us about how to like make the incision right below the obstruction. And I'm like, I'm not that kind of doctor, man. I'll let you guys do that. Yeah. Thankfully I've never seen that unfold on an airplane. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have had to respond to a few things. Yeah. Indeed. Um, can't think of an appropriate segue to our topic today. But <laughs> well, we have uh, this sort of informal series that we've been doing on, uh, on certain psychedelic medicines. And we figured we would continue that series today with ayahuasca. We had a DMT episode, which, you know, DMT being the active and psychedelic ingredient in ayahuasca, but thought it might be useful to dedicate some time 
to the plant, the vine itself. Yeah. Should we go through the whole list eventually? Shulgin's like list of alphabet <laughs> soup of psychedelics he created or learned to know and love? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. But or maybe, who knows? What's your favorite psychedelic, Steve? Mm, so many to choose from. Uh, we were joking around about this before, and I, I said something extremely awkward. It was, uh, oh, my favorite psychedelic is the scent of my wife's hair. I love the, the non-ordinary state that puts me in. So if any of you are squirming, you're welcome. I hope she's listening. She doesn't listen to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> she supports me, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. In fact, she shared it with my oldest son the other day, and she's like, are you ever curious about what your dad's up to? Maybe you should listen to his podcast. And uh, I got the, the stamp of approval from my 15-year-old, so... And then one of your other kids drew us once. Yeah, I forgot about that. It was a flattering drawing. Um, much yeah. better than the drawing that same child gave me one time for, I think, Father's Day. It might have been spontaneous, but there was this hmm. drawing of me with a cape and my beard and my bald head. And the title was, uh, <laughs> the title was Captain Fartbeard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ah, I love my kids. That's I good, cherish that's that one. That's a good nickname. Mm -hmm. I think I'll start a band called Captain Fartbeard. I think it would do well. And speaking of bands, uh, did you know that Paul Simon drank ayahuasca and wrote a song about it? <laughs> I actually did not know that. You want to hear it? Of course. Uh, I'll sing, sing it, this sacred sing song for you. Yeah. No, I'll just read it or rap it. Okay, it's called Spirit Voices. Some stories are magical meant to be sung, songs from the mouth of the river. When the world was young... And all of these spirit voices rule the night. I drank a cup of herbal brew, the sweetness in the air, combined with the lightness in my head, and I heard the jungle breathing in the bamboo. Mm. Heard the jungle breathing. Synesthesia. I say that sounds like ayahuasca to me. Yeah. You know what I uh, find really cool about ayahuasca? Is it's one of the psychedelics that is kind of revered for its ceremonial and spiritual properties and rarely used recreationally. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm saying there's anything wrong with like the varieties of the psychedelic experience and people's right to explore the consciousness, but I just mean it's like it's respected for its psycho-spiritual power and its indigenous roots. Yeah, it's one yeah. thing that sets it apart. And uh, along with other psychedelics during what we've been calling the psychedelic renaissance, it's experiencing a lot of attention. And so you get people going down to South America, Central America to have these ceremonial psychedelic experiences um, because of these unique properties that you're referring to. Like it's, it's, you're not going to see a lot of uh, ayahuasqueros at a rave handing out cups of this uh, disgusting, <laughs> usually not very tasty, uh, tea, right? Yeah. I've, I've got another quote for you. If you'll allow it, I'll allow it. <laughs> bear with me because it's from Jack Cornfield, one of my favorite mm. teachers, uh, meditation gurus, but he, he talks about, well, he said a lot of people use psychedelics in mindless or misguided ways without much understanding. The spiritual context gets lost. It's like taking a synthetic masculine pill and forgetting the 200-mile desert walk and months of prayer and purification the Weechols use to prepare for their peyote ceremony. Mm. Some modern explorers like Stan Groff and Ram Dass have a much greater sense of the power or the force that one may confront. 
One needs to respect the depth of these experiences and make a conscious commitment to the full journey of spiritual change. Hmm. 1993. Wow. It reminds me of uh, the Jung quote that we've often uttered on this podcast, beware of unearned wisdom when referring to psychedelic experiences. You know, people taking quote unquote shortcuts yeah. to unconscious content. And Jack Cornfield is has my favorite book on that topic. Uh, After Ecstasy, The Laundry. Mm. It's just fascinating. Like I recommend it a lot for people's integration and preparation for that matter. Just like it drives home like nothing I've read, the importance of both the preparation and integration, the long game. Like it talks about how if you're in some of these Eastern traditions and you have a guru or teacher it's better if they're very far and you have to travel several nights over hills with your belongings on your back to go see them because you will value it more. Yeah. You know what that makes me wonder is with uh, if you were approaching psychedelics, ayahuasca included, for the purpose of spiritual growth or mental healing, you know, psychological healing, I don't think there is any other game but the long game. Yeah. Right. I mean, people go down for these ayahuasca ceremonies with lots of different intentions and hopes. A lot of them being like, I hope this intense experience cures me. I hope it changes me. I hope it takes my pain away. I hope it uh, teaches me something I didn't already know. And it can do a lot of those things. Uh, but like we often talk about on this show, um, it's not the it's not the end point. Right. If anything, it's it's the the beginning of a new I don't know branch yeah. on your path. Yeah, I love that. It's uh, one of my favorite questions to reflect on personally and to uh, give to other people is like you know it's one thing to feel an outpouring of love during an ayahuasca ceremony, but does it change the way you give and receive love when you get back home? Does it? change the way you show up in a more loving way Mm -hmm. after the ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about integration, right, that's what we're often talking about, taking what you experience in the ceremony and then trying to integrate it into day-to-day life, sober life. Yeah. And that process, like the psychedelic experience, spiritual journeys are not without risk. Mm -hmm. Like you don't go up without coming down or like coming back down the mountain. And that can be a rocky journey sometimes. I think this is especially the case with ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is this sort of mini hero's journey, right? Yeah. A a process of death and rebirth, which is even baked into some of the nomenclature. Like, um, I don't know it perfectly, but uh, I have it written down here. In the Quechua languages, aya means spirit, soul, or corpse, or dead body, and wasca meaning rope or woody vine. The word ayahuasca has been variously translated as uh, liana of the soul, liana of the dead, or spirit liana. But this idea that it like you die a death, and then mm-hmm. there's a rebirth. Yeah, it is. And the journey itself, um, you know, there's this macro hero's journey in the call and the preparation and like the returning with gifts integration. But there's also this kind of microcosm of it during the experience where you're sitting there, like ingest the spirit vine, Mm -hmm. wait for it to kick in. But then the perceptual changes uh, initially, that first 90 minutes can be quite difficult. I think that's the, um, 
you know, the peak of the difficulty for many people and the purge, that purgatory often happens during that time period. But then after that, on the other side of that is often like an expansive state of bliss and oneness and the assimilation, reintegration of those beautiful insights into coming back into normal waking consciousness. Yeah, well said. I, I, I feel like that, that course of the experience of come up, peak, come down is common with yeah. psychedelics just because the way they're, you know, if you want to get physiological about it, the way they're metabolized. But um, that, that purgatory aspect, like the purge, is I don't know that it's exclusive to ayahuasca. People will purge on other psychedelics. Mm -hmm. um, we've got people puke on ketamine, but um, it's for the ceremony. It's been especially uh, if you listen to the shamans that have been holding this medicine for thousands of years. It's integral. It's it's like a part. It's an important yeah. part of that trajectory of experience. Which um, is interesting to me because having sat in a lot of ayahuasca ceremonies, not like, I mean, a lot means different things to different people, sure. but there have been plenty where no one purged, mm. physic, like purged by vomiting right. during the ceremony, even though the, the medicine team, the shamans had set up this context of like, you know, when you purge, you're going to take it follow this candle path over to this place where you're going to dispose of it with a prayer and very like beautifully ceremonial, but no one did. And then I'd say most ayahuasca ceremonies I've sat in, it's less than half of people who have. In my own experiences, it's been the minority where I've thrown up. But the answer to that from like, I think shamans and scientists alike would be that you can purge in many different ways. It might mm -hmm. be shaking, yawning, crying, diarrhea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard one shaman uh, comedically say that if you <laughs> if you vomit and crap at the same time, we call that the gold star. Mm. Um, Good job. Yeah, congratulations. Well done. And I, I said you should you missed an opportunity there to call it brownie points, and he thought that was gross and hilarious. Mm. Um, so yeah, many <laughs> way many ways to purge uh, energetically and physically. Yeah, and and another thing. I really appreciate about ayahuasca and think we can learn from that tradition and apply in, in other psychedelic medicine contexts is how much attention is paid to preparation, both the physical, the psychological, the spiritual prep, including your diet. Mm. Yeah. So this, this is a good time, again, I guess, to talk about the, the dieta, the ayahuasca diet, because, um, well... You know a lot about this. You've you've studied this. Have some thoughts on this. Maybe yeah. give a little intro for our listeners. What is uh, typically meant by the ayahuasca diet? Often called dieta, um, which is sometimes confused with the fact that uh, many people go do a dieta in the jungle with a specific where they'll commune with a specific plant. Mm -hmm. Often with ayahuasca ceremonies uh, sprinkled during those few weeks or a couple of weeks, um, but you're really communing with a plant like rose or willow or, or something else to learn its wisdom and kind of gain some of its properties. Um, but the dieta, the ayahuasca diet, is um, typically abstaining from uh, 
unclean foods, impure foods, and tyramine-containing foods that we can talk about as well um, for the days or weeks leading up to a ceremony and sometimes a little bit after. Mm -hmm. And then it also involves like a, a cleanse or diet from like some media, um, uh, a little bit of time away from sex, mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the belief is that uh, the diet from the foods is to help, as you said, clear yourself of unclean things. Um, but some of this is perhaps tr more traditional than it is scientific. You mentioned tyramine. Mm -hmm. um, why would we want to avoid tyramine-containing foods before taking ayahuasca? So um, backing up a bit, those two ingredients in ayahuasca tea that you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, there's, there's the DMT and there's an MAOI. And you can get DMT from like 50 different plants. Right. Um, it's commonly from like psychotria, the vine. Um, and then there's MAOI coming from like another, another plant. And people even do this with pharmawaska, like synthetic DMT and an MAOI. MAOIs happen to be well known to psychiatrists because they're a class of antidepressants, an older one. Mm -hmm. um, some of the new psychiatrists have never Many have never prescribed them, but um, they're actually really good antidepressants that came with a dietary restriction. Uh, so MAOI stands for monoamine oxidase inhibitor, and ayahuasca contains a plant form of that. And therefore, um, part of the rationale for the diet is to avoid things that don't mix well with an MAOI, even though I can talk about how it's, um, you know, it's kind of misunderstood the way people usually talk, talk about it. But MAOI, essentially, um, MAO, it, monoamine oxidase, will go mop up your norepinephrine, for example. You take an MAOI, it will inhibit the mopping up, make norepinephrine more available. That's a simple explanation. Therefore, you're... It's like adrenaline, so your blood pressure's up, your heart rate's up. It also, to, to an extent, does that with tryptophan, so your serotonin could be up a bit. Um, so the concern is that if you take too much of an MAOI and eat too much tyramine in your diet, especially in fermented foods, that you could have a hypertensive crisis. Mm. And the, the reason, um, the, I mean, I don't think we said this yet, but the the combination of DMT and the MOI is to uh, make DMT orally available. Because otherwise, yeah. if you were to eat the vine or whatever, or just orally ingest DMT, uh, your stomach breaks it down and it doesn't make it to your, your brain. Yeah, that's why in, in the um, other the other ways people use DMT, it's often inhaled or smoked. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're going to eat DMT, your liver enzymes, like your monoamine oxidase in your system will just chew it up before it crosses the blood-brain barrier. So you're given an MAOI to make it stick around long enough to cross into the brain and hit your serotonin receptors like 5-HT2A and some others and, and kind of occasion this mystical experience. Right. Um, but the interesting thing about... So there's the diet from a shamanic perspective, a psycho-spiritual prep. And then from a medical perspective, like I'm glad there's 
um, strict restrictions. But um, and I hesitate to say this because I don't want people to take it the wrong way. But um, they're not as necessary for safety as people think because. Mm. Um, Ayahuasca contains what's called the reversible MAOI. Um, the ones we prescribe are irreversible, meaning like for days you've uh, inhibited what's mopping up your your norepinephrine. Mm-hmm. Um, the irreversible is ours, and they're in the U.S. We can't prescribe any irreversible irreversible MAOIs, but in Europe there is one, meclobamide. Irreversible or reversible? Oh, sorry. Good catch. Yeah. So we have irreversible MAOIs um, in the U.S. that we can prescribe for depression. And they come with dietary restrictions. They say that, like, you have to keep your, your uh, you can't eat tyramine-containing foods, or some of them, like the MSAM patch, E-M-S-A-M patch. I think it's a great antidepressant, very expensive, though. Um, you can eat up to six milligrams of tyramine a day. Um and we could talk about how much is in different foods if you'd like. But ayahuasca is a reversible one. In Europe, there's a reversible one you can prescribe that has zero dietary restrictions, up to hundreds. They've studied up to hundreds of milligrams of tyramine a day hmm. without a hypertensive crisis. So, um, yeah, the the thing is, like, the there's so much beauty in the psycho-spiritual prep and the body purification and when you seek ayahuasca in a ceremonial context, you're not often not sitting with medical professionals um, trained to like manage your um, tyramine content and your, um, your medications, pressure, your yeah. MAYs, things like that. So I think it's an excellent approach to be extra cautious. Um, because ayahuasca does just by nature increase your blood pressure and heart rate a little bit anyway. Mm-hmm. And so does exercise and yeah. sex and like there's a lot of things that, that cause temporary increases in blood pressure. But if you have an issue with blood pressure, it's something that you want to be thoughtful about. Uh, yeah, on average, ayahuasca, and this has been measured because it's fun to study, <laughs> uh, increases your systolic blood pressure by 11 mmHg and your diastolic by 5 and your heart rate by like 8 points, mm-hmm. peaking at about like 2 hours or something. Which, and returning to baseline. As a non-physician, doesn't sound like a lot. It no, like no, you could... Increase. You could do that with a couple push-ups, get that bump. Right, yeah. right. So I'm hearing you say that the the spiritual, the psycho-spiritual, the, the psychological prep um, of the, the dieta is, it helps set the container, set your intention yeah. for the experience. And that way, super important, right? Um, and, you know, let's be honest, most of us, our diets could be cleaner. And, uh, oh, yeah. And you feel differently when you have a diet that's more nutritious and... Uh, not dominated by all these things that make us feel like garbage. Yeah, I, you know, kind of an admission of, not guilt, but like I wish... Confession uh, time with Reed <laughs> I wish we, and we should, we should do this. I wish we encouraged more dietary prep, pre-ketamine even. Mm. Um, and sure, we'll have people abstain from eating solid foods for X number of hours beforehand, whatnot. But, but there's something that happens when you exercise some uh, discipline over the habitual ways of showing up. And when you um, are just really attentive to what comes into your body, energetically, physically, um, and helps make something more special or sacred. 
Yeah. For a lot of reasons, right? Yeah. One of those reasons is when, when you, when you practice not doing something you're used to doing, um, all of a sudden you become aware of the, the dominance of the monkey mind over your behavior. And yeah. you practice sort of experiencing the urge, surfing the urge, and let, and letting go of your attachment to the thing is a beautiful way to prepare for a psychedelic experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that reminds me of a Ram Das quote that I just saw in our email inbox from our dear colleague and fearless leader, one of them, Michael, mm. uh, CEO and President Numinous. It was a Ram Das quote that said something like, the world belongs to those who have learned to let go. Mm. Yeah. I like that. It's a one to ponder. Yeah, yeah because we're so used to, to uh, controlling, right? Exerting control, our force of will to dictate our path and the paths of others around us. Um, so that is, that's one to ponder, letting go. That's often the advice we give people when they enter a psychedelic experience. And uh, what people report when they're grappling with grandmother ayahuasca that uh, when they stop grappling and let go yeah oftentimes they experience of ha or excuse me have a better experience yeah i remember my first time sitting with ayahuasca in the jungle um in another country i'm just doing my appropriate disclaimers <laughs> that are in fact quite true yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, i remember talking to uh my friend tony who was one of the like he'd sat with thousands of ceremonies and um, was one of the helpers there. And I was asking him, hey, Tony, can I bring a notebook in here? He's like, haha, no. Um, and he's like, what's your intention? Um, and we were just talking about it. And he's like, you know, if I can give you one suggestion uh, or one to put front and center or one by default is surrender. Mm. And, and uh, it's probably the one I've given people the most in my psychedelic lifetime too of facilitating surrender and so somebody's listening to this podcast they've never done a psychedelic they certainly you know have never done ayahuasca what's the value reed do you think of mm -hmm. surrender in an ayahuasca experience yeah so well the world's going to change right you're ingesting a medicine that will bring about an altered state of consciousness uh, one that can be quite therapeutic and uh and spiritual like consciousness expanding perhaps um but uh if you fight it um that will be quite distracting and quite difficult and so the only real way to uh to go through that experience is to kind of buckle up and relax into the flow of that wild ride mm. yeah that's a great, yeah, relax into the flow of the, the wild ride. So one of the things I did in Montana was float a river. And this wasn't hey, like cool. an aggressive river. We were on, you know, Walmart purchased inner tubes, <laughs> lashed yeah. together haphazardly. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're on a river like that, it sort of takes you where it wants to take you. And it can be exhausting if, if your objective, for example, was I need to be in the center of this river the entire time. Mm -hmm. So if I ever come off center, I'm going to swim back or paddle back to center. I'm going to fight the current of this river. I'm going to swim upstream because I don't want to go yeah. downstream. That is exhausting. You can make a little headway, but ultimately you'll have a, a better time of it if you mm -hmm. go with the flow. Yeah, it's uh, how it's a mantra that I have 
uh, tried to integrate into day-to-day life, um, not just thanks to ayahuasca, but thanks to you know other psychedelic medicines and other practices that encourage surrender, like contemplative and spiritual practices. Um, because, I, well, I love the idea from Taoism of that there's this unseen river flowing underneath us, uh, and we are, in fact, rafting on it right now mm. on Walmart rafts or not. But you can go upstream, uh, which is kind of difficult and counterproductive, and you're not going to go very far. Or you can feel into the flow and relax into the natural direction of it. And sure, you can steer your raft a little bit. You can You have plenty of conscious choice of, you know, where you go within that flow. But, uh, but yeah, it's a very different exercise or experience to completely fight it and try to go upstream. Right. Yeah. And one of those go with the flow attitudes is curiosity, you know, and oftentimes mm-hmm. we'll give people this advice when they're entering a psychedelic experience is be curious about what shows up instead of resisting it. Like, no, I don't want you here. I don't want this experience. You welcome it with curiosity. Why are you here? Go Mm -hmm. investigate it. If there's a staircase, go down it. If there's a door, open it up. If there's a monster, ask it what it wants. (laughs) What's it doing in your mind? If there are insectoids who wanted to want to uh, take you apart and put you back together, Go ahead and let them. So, and I believe Steve is alluding to our recent DMT episode (laughs) from a few weeks back where I told a story, which happened to be during an ayahuasca ceremony, Mm -hmm. when I had a visitation from uh, a group of rather large, giant praying mantises, Mm -hmm. um, grasshoppers. They were dark colored, much larger than an adult human. And uh, at first we're on the other side of this window, but then pretty soon they went through the window and with their large praying mantis head and their little, like their little pointy finger hands, they started picking apart my body. And I remember even thinking, like almost laughing to myself during that experience. I was like, I'm so thankful for having tools. I'm so thankful for having experience in um, in this state with this medicine and these medicines and thankful for uh, that I can remind myself to surrender because like I could see how that would be terrifying. And yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> that sounds pretty freaking terrifying. I, I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> it's so interesting for me to hear that, right? Because the way you describe it, it sounds like a horror movie. Like this is out of that movie, uh, the, A Quiet Place or is that... <laughs> yeah, these, these giant like you know bug-like aliens come down and take us apart. Yeah, but then what was left of me as they picked apart this exterior form? Um, you, you know, after I reminded myself to oh be curious, like mm-hmm. you said, surrender. Um, this is in fact a medicine that I ingested, and I'm not actually losing my body forever. Mm -hmm. Um, But after they picked it apart, what was left was this like, I don't know, this soul just like buzzing with energy and sparkling. It could actually like move more freely after that without the constraints of like, like a tense, you know, body formed by, you know, all of our, patterns and movements and habits and things. Um, so it was a really profound experience too right. and and joyful in many ways, even though I was getting eaten by large insects. 
one of the questions I get from people when they find out what I do um, is, you know, why would I want an experience like that? What would an experience like that do for me? Why does the research that's been done show a connection between experiences like that mm-hmm. and a decrease in certain mental health symptoms like depression and alienation and anxiety? And so it's a really good question. And I know there are a lot of ways to answer it, a lot of different opinions. But one thing I've been thinking about lately is that ayahuasca and medicines like this can give you a direct experience with um, another reality or something beyond your normal waking consciousness, a direct mystical experience that is, is at mystical experiences are at the heart or root of like spiritual traditions through the ages. And here we live in a time when we can occasion that. And what happens after those, as we've seen from the studies and we can talk about, uh, is often not just a profound deepening of spirituality, but a, like a progression in personal development that le- that's leaps and bounds around normal day-to-day life. Yeah, it's almost like it, it connects you. It's a remembering of who you are, right? Then you see people, as you, just, as you alluded to, read, like make decisions mm-hmm. about their lives that line them up with physical and mental health um, sort of automatically, right? That you go to your yeah. doctor and your doctor tells you to sleep well, eat right, and move and exercise. And people start doing stuff like that after ayahuasca. You know, there's there's great data that people after an, one ayahuasca experience are a lot less likely to drink alcohol if they've had problems yeah. with alcohol. A lot less likely to smoke cigarettes if they've had trouble with cigarettes. Um, a lot more likely to eat you know, nutritious foods and stay away from things that are not as nutritious. Uh, and we don't have to be told, right? Maybe grandmother tells them. I, I'm referring mm-hmm. to grandmother ayahuasca because that's one of the uh, the traditions around this particular, the energy that's in- inherent in this particular psychedelic. But yeah, the people just make better choices. Yeah, I had a really neat experience once of getting to do, uh, to go to an ayahuasca ceremony and participate in it with um, my brother and my son who mm. had become an adult and, and, uh, you know, wanted to experience this. And I remember when the medicine kicked in, remember him uh, leaning over and chuckling because like I was, I had one, I had them on each side of my mat and uh, and my son down leaned over and he's like, isn't it crazy that this medicine is illegal when it gives you tips about how to live life in a better way? Mm. Like, like talking about how it, gives you nature connectedness and uh, more uh, loving, uh, interconnected view of other humans and, um, and ways to improve oneself. Yeah. Yes, Dallin, it is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. Um, so there was this study I came across recently that I thought was pretty cool at answering the question uh, that you just asked of why would someone want an experience like this? Mm. It was a study of Tibetan monks who had psychedelic experiences and just surveyed these drug literate um, Tibetan monks. It was like in the early 90s uh, across multiple psychedelics. But one was to show glimpses of possibilities beyond yourself, Mm. like seeing life from a broader perspective. Two was seeing how we create these narrow 
confines of our life, these patterns, uh, these self-limiting beliefs, or, or they got layered on us and we maintain them. And three was feeling connected to others in a new way, like mm. that oneness, that loving kindness that comes from it. Um, and I guess that was number four too, is deep feelings of love and connection beyond this duality or beyond the human form, like feeling into others that way. And then lastly was glimpsing a broader version of yourself beyond your individual self, human form. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I had to design an experience for somebody who's depressed that might help them with their depression, it would look a hell of a lot like that. Yeah. And there have been studies, like you said, where there was even a study outside a psych ward that gave ayahuasca and measured, um, compared to placebo, measured uh, changes in depression that happened within hours and lasted at least the week that later that they measured it. Right. And suicidality decreased. Right. Yeah, there was one study that I looked up. Um, they had, let's see, 2012 study with uh, alcohol users. So this is kind of what I was referring to earlier, that um, those who had had this one ayahuasca experience reduced their alcohol intake, ate healthier diets, enjoyed improved mood and greater self-acceptance, and felt more loving and compassionate in their relationships. 74% of the ayahuasca users said they had a relationship uh, with and received ongoing guidance and support from the spirit of ayahuasca. They maintain hmm. their relationship with the, the spirit of the medicine. Yeah, that, uh, that reminds me of the Hawaska project. Uh, and maybe this data is from some of that, but I think Grob in the 90s, one of the big studies, it was of the UDV um, Ayahuasca Church in Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, and it surveyed members, at least going to one of the centers, and... Um, of the people who had consumed ayahuasca in this in this context, every one of them said that it had resulted in significant personal transformation. There were no like it's a small study, but like they didn't find any active mental health diagnoses in the sample, but they found like a dozen or so in this small sample that um, every one of them cited ayahuasca as being instrumental in the recovery from whether it be an addiction or a, you know, a mood disorder or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of promise here yeah. with ayahuasca. And that's all with the grain of salt, of course, that this survey data, we have to be careful how we interpret it. There are only a few small controlled trials of, of ayahuasca, but, but when they come out, like there's another one that showed that, an ayahuasca ceremony was better than an eight-week mindfulness program at kind of helping you cultivate a trait of mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate the cautionary statements. And I think, you know, we need a lot of... The, the, the research being done now is still very young. We need longitudinal data. We need to see how these people do, not over the course of several weeks, but over the course of several years. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I think excitement is justified, but so is caution. Yeah, and it's a whole new world that this opens up because here we have a plant medicine, a tea. That, An ancient one, right, that's been used ceremonially for thousands of years. That uh, we're still trying to come up with contextual frameworks for. Like uh, there was one 
um, kind of term or paper that I like that called these things psycho-integrator plants, or just trying to get at this convergence of science and spirituality that is much needed in the mental health field and in general, but uh, it kind of blows the lid off uh, the typical understanding and nomenclature of normal psychology. Right. right. Yeah, it's been fun to watch from a distance people coming up with different names. You know, the term psychedelic has mm-hmm. been the traditional one, um, you know, at least traditional in several decades, but um, lots of different words to try to describe what's going on. I'm hearing a lot now uh, plastogens, like psych- uh, neuroplastogens, uh, mm-hmm. just to describe the neuroplasticity we think that's going on with uh, yeah. psychedelics, ayahuasca included. And it's fascinating, too, as these fields converge uh, to see that, like, serotonergic psychedelics, uh, like the classic psychedelics, are hitting this serotonin system that is implicated not just from psychedelic studies, but otherwise in as a mediator of spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. I think it was even... Rick Strassman in one of his books or papers, I saw you have his book yeah. uh, on the table next to you. Got his it new right one. Here, the Psychedelic Handbook. Shout Unsponsored out. plug for Rick Strassman. You're welcome, Dr. Strassman. Yeah, he he was just on Joe Rogan the other week. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not all the way through his 3.5-hour conversation, <laughs> but it's been fun what I have listened to because yeah. um, it's all a bit, well, it's all about... His journey and lots of DMT stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it makes me think. I, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the the show, um, Richard Evan Schultes. I was listening to the podcast Plants of the Gods, mm-hmm. and uh, an episode about ayahuasca, and they were talking about how Richard Schultes, this sort of father of modern ethnobotany, going down and um, being one of the people responsible for bringing ayahuasca to us uh, North Americaners, Westerners. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some fun quotes by Schultes about ayahuasca that I wanted to read as a, as a sort of tangent here. But so Schultes says, there's a magic intoxicant in the Northwest Amazon in which the Indians believe can free the soul from corporal confinement and allow it to wander free and return to the body at will. The soul thus untrammeled liberates its owner from the everyday life and introduces him or her to wondrous realms of what he considers reality and permits him or her to communicate with his ancestors. Amazonian shamans imbibe ayahuasca to diagnose, treat, and cure illnesses and claim that the potion empowers them to see into the future, ward off misfortune, and provide protection against jealousy and negativity. He says, again, ayahuasca freeing the soul. The vine of the soul refers to the freeing of the spirit. The plants involved are truly the plants of the gods. The plants of the gods. Um, No, that's a good one. Anything else we want to say about uh, the neurophysiology of ayahuasca? I I was uh, reading something, an interesting article about how it stimulates the visual cortex. So there was a study where... Uh, they measured the activity of the visual cortex uh, when they showed participants photographs and then yeah. had them close their eyes. And they found that uh, when they, in this case, had the ayahuasca, the DMT and the ayahuasca, even with closed eyes, the cortex was just as active as when they were looking at the photographs. So Yeah. That's something that struck me um, when experiencing ayahuasca, because I could read about it, but um, as we know, reading about something doesn't really give you 
knowledge of that thing. And the mm. direct experience was quite mind-blowing to have these well, closed eye visual hallucinations, but then open my eyes and they're still there. Like mm. the, the ayahuasca experience, you can get this to a certain extent on other psychedelics too, but, but it's notorious for its ability to bring about this lucid dreaming type state. Mm -hmm. And I like the lucid dreaming analogy too, because like lucid dreaming, you can learn to navigate with practice mm. a, a state like that, like you can with you know, the ayahuasca experience to perhaps uh, navigate it with more surrender, more curiosity, and more ability to kind of cultivate some of the some of the insights from that experience. But, but yeah, I remember sitting there and uh, I think with my eyes closed and um, all of a sudden there was this like solar system. It was like a, must've been close to the sun or something cause it was this deep red orange and there are these planets whizzing by. And then um, I start looking towards myself and it turns out I am a planet mm. <laughs> and I'm, whizzing through this galaxy and I look over the other people in the room there were also planets. <laughs> and uh, But what was interesting about this and so many other times on ayahuasca is closing my eyes and opening my eyes, it was often the same thing. And mind you, you are in a dark, a somewhat dark setting usually. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, again, it, it begs the question like, what the hell? What, what 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 do we do with an experience like that? But as a psychologist, I love these experiences for my clients because it's we have all this sort of rich deck of cards we can play with now. Like, okay, let's explore it. What what could this mean? Yeah. What, what what might it mean to be a planet among other planets in the universe, with uh, you know whizzing through the vacuum of space? So if nothing else, it's a catalyst for thought and discussion. Mm -hmm. You know, it was fun as I was at out of town earlier this week at a at a meeting and was sitting at dinner next to uh, a fellow who turns out, uh, as I'm getting to know him, turns out he invented fMRI. Oh. You know? <laughs> and it was like, oh, interesting. I'm thinking to myself, I'm sorry, I didn't know that when I said hello, but like we had the wildest, most fun conversation about some of these things, um, meandering into psychedelic territory too. But one of the things when I asked him what he had really learned or what struck him from having this tool, bringing about this tool and studying the brain combined with these events and paradigms, seeing what the brain does functionally is, well, he saw that when you imagine things, imagery and seeing have the same kind of uh, fMRI signature. Like, sure, the the actual retina and the optic nerve isn't uh, stimulating the same way with your eyes closed, but the visual cortex lights up in the same way mm. when you imagine a thing or hallucinate a thing mm -hmm. as when you see a thing. I wonder if that's universally true, because you, you and I talked before about this, uh, that some people, like when you ask them to call up an image in their mind, their pupils will dilate or constrict, I can't remember, yeah. but some people's won't, to imply that like certain people have a difficult time calling up images in their mind. Yeah, and, and sure, there are individual variations in like how we process that, and you're, you're the uh, kind of innate and... Uh, kind of environmentally influenced uh, abilities of your visual cortex and 
predisposition to use that versus other right. routes right. of learning a memory. But, but uh, yeah, I think it's something that's, it's an example of how psychedelic studies are, like Stan Groff said, kind of like the telescope is to astronomy mm-hmm. for the field of neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so much more to explore and, and to learn because these uh, individual variations are important to consider, right? Psychedelics are not for everybody. We've, we've uttered that cautionary statement many times in this podcast, but yeah. ayahuasca included, right? Not for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's one that is certainly less accessible than others because of the dietary restrictions, that long preparation time, and even more because of the um, the rule that most ceremonies will have, that you can't be on any other medicines, mm-hmm. especially psychiatric medicines. I, like There are some exceptions, like often um, shamans and retreat teams will let you come in on certain hormone or thyroid treatments perhaps, um, you know, and, and I've, I've done a lot of consulting for shamans on physiologically what might be okay with ayahuasca, what might not. Um, like sometimes, uh, like, you know, certain types of antihypertensives might, might be okay. But, uh, as a general rule, um, if you're on an antidepressant, you're not going to be accepted into an ayahuasca retreat, which makes it, you know, highly uh, hard to access for someone on those meds who might need some help getting off. Yeah. And the concern there with SSRIs, for an example, uh, as an example, is uh, blunting of the effect. But is there a concern about serotonin syndrome? Or? Well, there there is. Um, again, a theoretical one because uh, you know both the MAOI activity has. Uh, like I mentioned just very briefly, the tryptophan it inhibits the mopping up of tryptophan. Like it, well, it uh, it stimulates more tryptophan. And if you have it from medicine or dietary sources or other ways of getting more serotonin, there's this thought that you might accumulate too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so theoretically, possible. And but I have met shamans who said they would navigate um, carefully with the right people and the right medical team on board, um, ayahuasca for people on certain meds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so not a complete no, but for like you said, it's uh, not as accessible as yeah. maybe like, well, it's also not legal in the United States. That makes it a little harder to uh, access, but yeah. as something like, yeah. you know, compared to ketamine where you can have beyond more medications and mm-hmm. they play better. Yeah, yeah, but it it's a really unique one I think in that uh dreamlike state we're talking about yeah. and in this symbolic uh content. Like you're you're in this what did Carl Jung call it? Transcendent function of like you're in this realm where you're accessing both the unconscious and the conscious and you can weave them together into like normal waking consciousness to bring some kind of insider revelation or connection with you. Well, Reed, anything else you have in the, your pile of notes there that you wanted to talk about with respect to ayahuasca? You know, um, I think maybe a quote from William James, ah. who, uh, who talked Father about... Father of modern psychology. Yeah, and... Uh, like kind of a champion of altered states of consciousness. 
He said back in 1902, well, no, he was born in 1902. He's sometime in the 1900s. He said, the whole drift of my education goes to persuade me that the world of our present consciousness is only one out of many worlds of consciousness that exist, and that those other worlds must contain experiences which have meaning for our life. Um, and then he went on to say, the further limits of our being plunge, it seems to me, in an altogether other dimension of existence from the sensible and merely understandable wor world. Name it the mystical region or the supernatural region, whichever you choose. So far as our ideal impulses originate in this region, and most of them do originate in it, for we find them possessing us in a way we cannot articulately account. We belong to it in a more intimate sense that, than that which we belong to the visible world, for we belong in the most intimate sense wherever our ideals belong. I know this is a complicated quote, but yet the unseen region in question is not merely ideal, for it produces effects in this world. When we commune with it, the work is actually done upon our finite personality, for we are tuned into new men and women, and consequences in the way of conduct follow in the natural world upon our regenerative change. Mm. Yeah, it makes me think of what we talked about earlier about uh, psychedelic states reminding us of who we are down at the substrate of consciousness, right? Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why we call it a trip, right? Have, have a nice trip as you, you're going places, going to these other realms he's talking about. Yeah. And then maybe one other disclaimer to add is like when navigating these other realms, like there are some things to be extra cautious with. Mm. Like we've talked about them in psychological terms, like mania and psychosis. And like, if your sense of self identity, ego structures are loose to begin with or shaken up, then it's not the ideal time to obliterate them for a moment. But, right. but also in times of just being extra stressed and if you're not prepared for the experience and it can catch you off guard, we see that in these concert settings, right? Um, or if it starts or ends too abruptly and really shakes things up or jolts you, um, or if you're really struggling with something like leading up to that um, that has impact on your ability to piece yourself back together, um, there's an increased risk of just feeling fragmented after. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, I think that's a good place to stop because we've totally covered everything that could possibly be covered <laughs> with respect to this ancient medicine, obviously being facetious, but uh, pleasant conversation as usual. Thank you, Dr. Reed Robinson. Yeah, let's, uh, well, see you next time. Yeah. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. 
The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.